Welcome to Directly Correct, a Pippin's podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Luca Babich. Funny, did you see uh, GM's announcement of what they're doing? Yeah, the the buyout of, of employees and yeah, instead oh. of instead, instead of doing layoffs, they are op- offering every employee, I think, within a certain kind of criteria. You probably have to have been there for a while. Um, a buyout of their their job if they want to take it. So it's like voluntary retirements, but everybody can take it if they want to for the most part. Um, I'm wondering if that's like a trend that's going to catch on. Voluntary buyout. So it's uh, like we'll, we'll give you $20,000 just to go away, just to. I think it's based on tenure. Like, so if you've been there 20 years, I'm sure it's much more generous than if you've been there two yeah. years. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I don't know. I, I, I see it as like, I mean, kind of an innovative way of getting around doing layoffs. And they said they're going to cut $2 billion worth of expenses over the next few years. Yeah. But they need to invest 1.5 billion right now or something like that. So yeah, I think it's a more, a more of a long-term strategy for them to actually come down to the terms that they need to ref- like reformat the way of, of doing things and focus on like gas and uh, electric vehicles and similar. So I don't know. But how it's much, an interesting move. How much would you offer coal to go away? I guess there's, <laughs> there's no amount of money depends, in the world. It depends on a day. It depends on a day. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's so weird being on a podcast with your boss. <laughs> boss <laughs> boss is a bit of an overstatement here, I think. Yeah. But. Well, yeah, let's hear about uh, a little bit about Luca. Well, so so Luca, first of all, I'll just say this on a personal level. He's like pathologically humble. And so we're <laughs> not going to get a single braggadocious thing out of him today. But so our guest today is uh, Luca Babich, uh, father of two boys, the co-founder and CEO of my employer, Orgnostic. Um, he's an ex-CHRO. Um, he is, studied IO psychology at Harvard with Richard Hackman. And Ruth Wagman is also affiliated with Dan Dennison from University of Michigan um, and does some other cool stuff. I think you love guitars, plays water polo, a couple of other interesting things. But welcome to the podcast, Luca. Thank you for having me, Directionally Correct Cole, or correct, <laughs> Correctionally Direct uh, Cole. <laughs> oh, I forgot. You guys used to call me that. <laughs> what, what, what's your uh, guitar of choice, Luca? Well, currently I'm 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 playing a, a Music Man Axis. I really love that guitar. It's uh, it's one of those that Eddie Van Halen played back in in the day before making his own brand of guitars. But Music Man's I really love, and um, and Telecasters, Telecasters are probably my second choice. Fender Telecaster, like Tom Petty. Can you do like the tapping, like uh, Eddie Van Halen? Not like Eddie Van Halen, but I can try. Yeah. Oh, who can? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a Les Paul guy, uh, Gibson Les Paul. Mm-hmm. And then I just, it's, it sits in the closet essentially at this point. Don't ever pick it up anymore. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, that's one of the things that my co founder and I bonded over probably more than, than anything else. <laughs> that kind of stuck, uh, stuck us together for, the time being as well uh, so every time we go for a business trip somewhere he always find a guitar shop that we <laughs> need to go and visit and to check out all the new or old stuff uh, uh and all guitars that, that that are there so it's uh 
it's been a very cool kind of bonding experience. Well, that, that's the crazy thing about Igor. He actually looks like he would be in like a death metal band. You don't look like you play guitar at all. <laughs> you don't wear the stereotype much, Luca. Yeah, I'm not also as, as obsessed with guitars as he is, though. So, yeah. Can uh, you play well, the guitar, Cole? I have tried to pick it up a few times. I I was more of a singer than a musician, if that makes sense. Oh, I wow. like I picked up I picked up playing the piano by ear when I was younger. I can't do it anymore, but I never wanted to take like a formal lesson. I was just kind of against that, if that makes sense. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sweet child of mine. You're a singer, man. <laughs> yeah. You're in a punk band. You're in a punk band. I think it's one yeah, thing we, we talked share. about that a while yes. back on the podcast. I not come about lately. this. Yeah. So, um, well, <laughs> three chords in the truth. That's all you need. Exactly. Well, maybe, maybe we pivot like, so Luca, how did, how did you get into the IO psychology space and, you know, it seems like you, you're pretty grounded in the academic disciplines and you don't see that very often people who, you know, like we have a lot of PhDs on and obviously they're pretty grounded in academia, but I feel like of the people I know, you, you are very grounded in that space. I don't know. Can you talk about it all? Like what, what lent you to that direction and what made you, I don't know, passionate in this space? Yeah. I'm, I, I think it, it started back uh, at very early at the university. Um, I was uh, I was lucky enough to meet Richard Hackman at uh, one of his like uh, you know later stage lessons when he was giving these organizational psychology talks on around team effectiveness, team dynamics, and similar. And uh, that was something that was probably one of the first things that is related to psychology that I could completely relate to, maybe from like water polo experience and just having a team experience of some sort. Uh, and uh, I was very young at the time. I, I, I proposed uh, to work as a researcher and to help with like translations of team diagnostic surveys. That was the hot new things, the thing that, that, that Rich Hackman was doing. And I was like 18 or 19 at the time. And he was looking at me like this kid from Serbia who came in like from a public school and he's like why why do you want to do this <laughs> and I, I really thought it was a it was a fascinating feel I don't know that was something that really got me involved in it and just uh started to learn from him he was really a giant uh, in the space and after that I connected with uh with Ruth uh, uh Ruth Wagenman who now leads this whole six conditions uh, uh uh program who kind of kind of took this this research and tried tried to com commercialize it as well uh and that also led me to to Dan Dennison Dan and and Richard were also uh, good friends and uh Richard was one of Dan's mentors back in uh back in the day and uh it also kind of got me into the field from like team dynamics into organizational dynamics and culture which I also thought is a is a very fascinating field from like the the starting days of Edgar Schein and and uh, uh, that uh, uh, whole grounding of the organizational culture as a concept and then how it branched out into uh, into all these uh, uh, into all these different definitions and commercializations and then then coming in and trying to to put uh, a, a bit of a, a quantitative framework around it from something that was very qualitative and and yes called. Uh, uh, rest in peace like edgar recently left uh left us but uh just uh made a, a humongous impact on on pretty much everything that we do i think as a, as a field so 
so th- that that's how I got got into this, and I, I was supposed to go and uh, supposed to uh, to continue my academic journey, and I actually got to. Uh, Richard was uh, jokingly saying because I, I got into Peter Fonagy's uh, uh, theoretical psychoanalysis program, so I was supposed to do like uh, organizational theory from a psycho- psychoanalytic lens which was probably a, a terrible choice. Yeah, that time. sounds terrible. <laughs> no, well, but, but there was a researcher, Wilfred Bayan, who, who actually proposed this uh, as, a, as, you know, that was one of, the, one of the first ones who started doing organizational theory from, uh, from a psychoanalysis uh, perspective. And Richard was jokingly saying that, you know, there's someone who is going to pass that torch, but I never actually got into it. I thought it was a very slow discipline. I got very excited about the startups at that time, and that's how I never got into real academia and actually jumped into uh, into doing work. And the HR was just the first place where I thought, oh, you know, there are these like all these tech startups that are quite interesting and very dynamic. Uh, and how can I how can I click with a bunch of engineers? And what what are the things that I can bring as a value uh, after after having this this kind of background and 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 grounding myself in these um, uh, organizational psychology elements. So, so that's how I kind of slipped into into HR and uh, and and now finally in this space of actually leading something, leading a business, connecting all the dots uh, back from university days to uh, to actual professional experiences. So, it has been a hell of a journey. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Oh, I imagine it's amazing you have all these sort of a variety of experiences to draw on and you get to touch base with, you know, kind of giants of the field, which led you to uh, being a co-founder of Orgnostic. Like, what was your motivation going in when you like wanted to found Orgnostic? Uh, what was the driving force behind that? Well, you know, I, I think personal experiences and kind of it was all, almost this, uh, you know, you kind of feel these epiphany moments that, you feel that oh my whole career has driven me to this point where I should do something about this right and yeah. I I had this experience of uh, uh, fortunate enough to kind of uh, become a leader in in the HR space and actually lead a team and it ended up being a, a team of more than hundred people um, and uh, it was a very interesting how we started very early implementing people analytics practices and that was a very painful experience for myself because it was the first time that I was doing something and developing everything from scratch. Uh, And that was the point where I thought, you know, it shouldn't be this hard and it should be more accessible to people across the globe. And uh, I just found it, you know, you probably guys know and can relate to that when you're coming from this IO field, you you're trying to make decisions based on some evidence, right. And just getting into HR space, which has been very, you know, gut feeling driven, I never felt comfortable in that kind of situation. So I was always kind of leaning mm-hmm. back towards the the principles, there was methodology towards everything that I picked up at the uh, faculty and through my communication, like how I envisioned HR to function was, uh, you know, uh, I, I had these like pink glasses that Richard <laughs> put on my my, my my in front of my nose right so it, it's it's really colored uh, uh how i imagined that this space should look like uh so so it, you know when i realized that it's not like that that was a shocker to me and i was like oh well this needs to change somehow uh so that was a big motivation i would say you know kind of personal experience of something not uh really matching the vision of how this might look like and trying to then scale this a bit more yeah 
Well, you, you said, you know, what it shouldn't look like. What should it look like, Luca? And how is Orgnostic helping out with that? Well, how should it look like? I, I feel like it's 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 a good question. It's a it's a great question, and I wouldn't say that that I have a definitive answer. I have a vision of how it should look like, and I think it pretty much matches you know most of the visions of people that are coming from people analytics space. I think you recently wrote uh, uh, called an article about people analytics leading the uh, EHR function and how this is. This is the future, and I I truly believe that once we create more diversified workforce in HR space, once we get more people with diverse background to participate in this, that we are going to have an uh, a evidence based uh, a practice. You know that the paradigm is going to change, change, and that CHROs are not going to be able to be CHROs if they don't have a solid grounding in in, in people analytics. Uh, and uh, I think there are several barriers to entry. To this field, I think it's, it's been a, a you know a tremendously hard to find talent to actually work in HR space with data engineering background and data science background. That has mm. definitely been uh, kind of lacking not only in you know HR space; it's been lacking in, in engineering and R and Ds. Uh, um, but there are other points. You know, it's just market is not educated enough. You need to address that point. It's very costly to set up a practice, so you need to lower the the barrier to entry, you need to reduce the cost so that uh, you have the solutions that are scalable, that it's not going to cost you a kidney and a, uh, and a, 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 or, or a two uh, to run it, right? So so those are the points. That that, is that a address. Serbian thing? Do they pay in kidneys in Serbia or something? <laughs> yeah, sometimes. <laughs> it depends. It depends. It depends, yeah. <laughs> but like just like just to put like a bow on it, like what services does Orgnostic provide that allows organizations to get up and running more quickly than what you found in the wild. Yeah. Well, you know, we set a couple of KPIs for ourselves and that was uh, how do you help companies with reducing the time, time to insight? Uh, you know, how do you, how do you get them up to speed much quicker? Uh, so that was one thing. The other one was how do you get HRs to, to adapt? Uh, how do you get uh, uh, actual users uh, of people, consumers of people analytics to uh, to get to consume what the people analytics professionals are putting out there. There's been, uh, you know, tremendous effort once you kind of push dashboard out for someone to actually go in and, and do something with it. Um, and that has been that kind of adaptability was uh, or adoption of uh, uh, of the solution was something that that we really uh, really focused on. So what essentially we try to do is to reduce the cost of data engineering by automating the process of putting the data from multiple systems into into a common uh, a common warehouse and uh, automating it as much as possible so that can drive the cost down. And the second one was simplifying the interface for communication. I mean, we didn't want to build. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, another Tableau, right? Uh, I think Tableau is a great tool, ClickSense, Power BI, uh, but it has its purpose and it's a more of an analytical tool, more of a playground, more of a sandbox environment uh, than a tool to communicate data, uh, especially with the groups that are not data literate, right? So you need to create a, a simplified flow with a lot of educational content on top of that to engage someone, to get them excited about what they can get from data. And I think that is something that has been traditionally kind of missing for most of these tools to increase the adoption. And that has been the, you know, the, the, the end goal is democratization. How do you get more people involved? How do you get smaller companies to get connected? How do you get big ones to actually distribute data across the, 
um, different groups of people and similar. So, so yeah, those, those has been, those have been some of the principles uh, or, uh, goals that we wanted to, to, to tackle and achieve. Yeah. That's absolutely noble uh, and is a super valuable resource for organizations to get up and running. And you, you mentioned some of the uh, issues around like adoption and this sort of thing, but like, would you recommend people start their own function or start their own company like face with these sort of challenges? Well, uh, it, should they start a, a company or, 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 or not? I think, uh, you know, that that's something when i when i was starting all of this i think it was a very very peculiar time you know you started to see this hr tech hr tech boom uh so you had mm -hmm. a lot of data that suddenly became available to companies much earlier in their uh in their life cycle and i really saw thought that this was a this was the right timing right we finally are having data smaller companies are also having uh tons of data in front of themselves that is not necessarily structured and similar and uh you know those points have been like a driver for myself, but when it comes to other people and, uh, you know, my, my recommendation is always to start as early as possible, no matter whether you have too much data or too little data, it's more about a mindset, right? It's more about how do you structure the, uh, uh, how do you structure the, uh, 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 the processes so that it leads to optimal data and reduces the data yeah. depth down the road. Right. Yeah. I think, I think that makes a lot of sense, Luca. And, you know, HR tech area has been hot over the last few years. Another area that's been really hot at this current moment and over the last few months is this whole concept of generative AI. How, yeah. how do you see generative AI playing a role in the future of people analytics? And I know kind of offline, you and I have chatted about this because yeah. I've got an article coming out that'll be out by the time this podcast is live about the inquisitor and the change agent. But can yeah. you talk about the future of, of people analytics in relationship to generative AI? Yeah, and I think that this is truly a, a transformational technology. I don't, I've, I've never kind of got onto a, a blockchain hype. Uh, and, uh, you know, when that kind of came uh, and came down, I, I, I wasn't really overly surprised. It really never clicked uh, too much with me. But I felt feel that this hype right now that is happening around uh, AI as a technology and what has OpenAI managed to to do with like this is a true democratization of AI. Now you can see like all these different companies adopting the the paradigm that was completely foreign some oh, co yeah. couple of months ago, right? And uh, I think the impact has been tremendous, and it's just going to become more and more uh, the way like a, a different way of how we interact with data and how we interact with internet down down the road, right? So uh, I think it's very uh, it's irresponsible not to look into a company and your company, for example, if you're a founder and not think about uh, this new technology. Uh, so like the way I think it, it's it's going to help us in the people analytics space is, you know, you, you're going to have the GPT and, you know, people analytics GPT for transforming how, like my first use case that came to mind was uh, how do you transform the UX of uh uh, of of uh, people analytics stakeholders, right? How do you create this people analyst in a box uh, so that even if you're a small company or a big company, uh, you can access your rich data set through uh, a, a generative uh, algorithm that is going to answer the questions based on 
uh, normal language queries, right? So go and type in what you're interested in and get back the answer for, for that without, uh, without the complexity of actually creating your own queries or building your own reports. So I think that that kind of way of uh, making like the, the shift from thinking about uh, uh, analytics as a form of something that is cryptic, something that is distant into something that is more relational, something that you can communicate with, like you are communicating uh, with the person is definitely something that is going to do change the way that uh, our HRs are going to communicate with machines and with people analytics in the future. I think we can completely, you know, navigate around very simple uh, queries right out of the bat. And then moving mm -hmm. forward, it's just like doing all the complex analyses. You can just type an idea, right? Type in a, a, a hypothesis for, for a system to check um, down to, you know, creating reports and stuff like that. It, it, it can be, again, a very simple request and a, in a sentence format that uh, can return back uh, 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 that can return back the uh, the results. Not to mention, like just going into web and just like feeding. You know, Chat GPT might not be the the best uh, uh, the best one for uh, a very specific domain knowledge. But if you train this model on a on a specific set of research papers. Uh, if you train it on, uh, you know, HR blogs that are relevant and similar, mm -hmm. you can get back also prescriptive analytics that are just based on not only your data insights, but the general benchmarkable data. And I think this is incredibly exciting. You know, this is something that can only get better with time. That's really interesting. Uh, Colin, I've gone back and forth on this. Like, do you have like a generally positive view on generative AI as far as like, our career standpoint, or are the robot overlords going to take us over and essentially eat our lunch, and we're going to be obsolete? The Butlerian, Butlerian jihad, right? Uh, <laughs> hey, well, what does uh, that mean? I don't know if you're a Dune Dune fan. Uh, I, you're no. you're the lord you're the Lord got of the, the Rings guy. But, got the spice. Uh, got to get the spice. You got to get the, oh, the melange. Okay. The melange. Uh, no, so uh, I, I I do I generally have a very like uh, I'm not a a, a, a ludist, right? I, I generally have a very welcoming uh, uh, attitude towards new technologies, uh, yeah. and I think this is this is definitely something that is going to change the way that we are act interacting. I, I'm keeping a positive outlook. Um, uh, obviously thinking that is going to generate more jobs in the spaces and the social sciences and philosophy. I think that. Generally, uh, technical sciences are growing much faster than the social sciences in the past 20 years, and uh, it's going to, you know, cause probably a certain disbalance with the way that we're treating po policies around this. And uh, uh, general, I think, is just going to open up quite quite a lot of space for a new generation of philosophers uh, to rise up in the next 20 to 30 years. I think yeah. that's pretty pretty much where I am too. Like at first I was like really freaked out. Like, okay, we're all we're all out of a job essentially. But I think specifically in the social sciences, you have like such a diverse background along with like liberal arts sort of models that you you can contribute in multiple ways, in varied ways to connect dots in the ways that even like ChatGPT or generative AI cannot, because like you mentioned, like it's trained on a certain corpus of material that currently is static but there's gonna be plenty of room to use uh, creative thought and this sort of thing that generative ai will not be able to uh touch at least in the short run yeah my, my take on this i've been um thinking about it a lot 
Um, there's this uh, famous uh, VC guy who's also a crypto guy. His name's Balaji Srinivasan. He, he has this line I really like where he's like, the whole history of business is bundling and unbundling, right? So you had like a like a TV package and you had all the channels, 500 channels in it. And then you unbundled it to like create one little streaming service for a few things. But now all the streaming services are bundling together to create a new bundle. And I feel like originally when like Google was created, it was like the, the, the you know, they used to say it's like, oh, you could have all the corpus of human knowledge in your pocket just with a Google search. But then it kind of got like kind of unbundled over time because you had so many ads and and all the information wasn't really giving you the information you needed. And I feel like the new generative AI models are are the new bundling again of this really is all of human knowledge. Ask a question and it'll just answer it for you instead of you having to go find the answer yourself. So it used to be a psychology or a cyclopedia was the bundle. And then it was Google was the bundle. And now generative AI is the new bundle of things that's going forward. Yeah, a, a bit more powerful. It has, it yeah. has also, there's a libra librarian as well there uh, that is also doing some work. <laughs> well, what, a, what a wild, wild uh, advance we've seen from like literally people walking around the neighborhood selling encyclopedias to you. And you have like an entire shelf of this sort of stuff to all the world's answers in your pocket it's amazing or not yeah. <laughs> or go. it's or it's the wrong answers in your pocket i think that's where everybody yeah buried. yeah but it's but also there... sorry but how do you know the difference no but like wrong wrong answers like the 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 question on the wrong answers is uh it's uh I don't know. It's it's an interesting space because we are getting this kind of bias. I was I just this morning, someone sent me a picture of uh, uh, AI creating images of uh, uh, of uh, kind of animals in the office. I don't know if you've seen this. So they're like they put animals as metaphors for different uh, positions. So it actually requested a, uh, 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 an AI to create like images of animals to be in specific roles. Uh, so a CEO was a lion. Uh, uh, uh -huh. I don't know, like procurement was a donkey. HR was a monkey. Like, you know, there, there's some like some of these like, <laughs> like a, a salesperson is a fox. Like, and and like there is a machine wasn't that the is... donkey. That's surprising. <laughs> yeah, but it, I don't know. It's uh, it's just uh, it, it was an interesting thing just to see that level of bias that is just uh, you know, so human. <laughs> there, there's such a human thing that is spurring out of the 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 the, the machine. So it's uh. Um, we we have a long way to go. That that's what what I was aiming at. <laughs> that, that's wild. That it's picking up on stereotypical sort of things that uh, I, I guess are in some sort of like text uh, database somewhere, and it's pulling these out to exactly, uh, yeah. cast uh, different groups as animals. Well, uh, Luca, you want to be a guinea pig in our little circus we have here? Uh, for sure. Yeah, that, I, I guess that's why you invited me, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, totally. Well, I mean, like, just you're a cool dude as well. I mean, clearly. But uh, this is a new thing. It's called Pick a Number. I have, uh, let's see, it looks like 32 different things. And you get to be the uh, master of the domain by picking a random number. We'll talk about it. See how this goes. Yeah. 
This is the stochastic terrorism of our podcast. So you figure it out. Awesome. <laughs> stochastic terrorism. terrorism. I yeah. love it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the onus is on you, Luca. Pick, in, pick a number, huh? Uh, 12. 12. Oh, okay. This is one I, I, I don't really know much about, but uh, optimizing LinkedIn. Like I, I look at LinkedIn and like I got a million friend requests and I don't ever touch it. It gives me uh, uh, anxiety every time I go on there. But I know you two are uh, better at this sort of thing. How can we better uh, put ourselves out there through LinkedIn? Optimizing LinkedIn. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I cracked the, <laughs> the code. I just like randomly post things when I feel in. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. there, there's so like, there's so many hacks that you kind of pick up through time. And like, people are telling you something about LinkedIn algorithm and then you kind of try it, but I'm never certain whether that's actually true or not. So <laughs> I may, maybe Cole has a, has a better ways that, than, than I, uh, when it comes to navigating around the, the deep sea of LinkedIn. Well, so there's there's like a surface level answer and then there's like a deeper answer because I've done a little digging into this. But the surface level answer is I've just done a little A-B testing on myself. So you, you get this like common knowledge from people. I just try it out both ways. I'll create two posts and one will use the wisdom yeah. and the other one won't. And sometimes there'll be a difference and sometimes there won't. But uh, LinkedIn has actually very recently changed their algorithm. And it's like downranking basically everything that you do. So a post that in the past, you know, would have gone to 10,000 people is going to 2000. And it's just honestly, as a person who's like trying to like engage with the community, it's kind of a bummer because like, it's like, yeah, well, this, I'm creating is, like, like spending a, a lot of time creating really good content. It just doesn't go to anybody anymore. This is a typical influencer talk. Yeah, I think like every time. Oh, you shush. Hear like <laughs> shush, shush, shush. Well, I mean, like what, what were certain things that were working, Cole, that you found? I mean, it would be like, um, you know, just being able to like writing like this is this was the great thing I feel like about the old article is like if or the old um, algorithm is if I actually wrote like a really good article, it would uprank it. And if my article was crappy, it wouldn't go anywhere. <laughs> and so like now I feel like I'll write something really great and it will get the same traction as one of my older, crappier articles. Like, are you saying like more people read it and therefore it got upvoted or are you, are you implying that LinkedIn somehow knows the content of your article? Uh, I, I suspect it's probably a little bit of both. Again, I don't have the inside information, if, but I'm right. sure they're scraping it much like Google would scrape your type of stuff. But because um, like there's like backlinks and all that kind of stuff that happen in these type of services. But really, I think it's about what people they put it in front of. And unless you're getting like hundreds of likes within the first 30 minutes you're it's just not gonna pop like it would have popped before uh okay you're gonna pop into the nerdery okay yeah so i got some i'm gonna spring it on you guys but it's like what emails reveal about your performance at work and so i'm sure we're all like inundated by emails constantly and being in people analytics sort of space we also have a lot of power to use our insights and capitalize on what we learn. Uh, in fact, I don't really do it that often, not enough, uh, as much as I should anyway, it's about a personal flaw. But this article does have some practical advice based on a study of top, top executives. And what they're saying is they could predict what a rock star performance is, uh, performer is with 75% accuracy, they fall back and forth 
whether it's a correlation or ML prediction. So kind of take it with a grain of salt, but it's all based on patterns of emails. So the rock star executive uh, executives use simpler words, particularly in the subject line. They respond faster to emails and they respond more often. And this all leads to greater influence. So they don't spend a lot of time crafting these like long drawn out emails, this sort of thing. So the actual tips that they are saying is like, simplify your subject line and don't be lazy. So if it says like reply or forward, take that out and just put in what the actual message is so people can uh, read it and understand what the email is all about. And um, they also show that... Uh, executives that show a decline in emails six months prior to their attrition, they, they can actually see the timeline, a decline in email usage six months before they actually uh, get out of there. But I thought this was like really cool, like practical advice to make everyone faster and more efficient because you don't need a three paragraph email every time you go. Yeah, I've, I've got a few angles on this. If you let me kind of let loose here for a second. Uh, first, I remember a few years ago, there was this meme floating around, which is like a junior person writing an email versus an executive writing an email. And like the junior person is writing like so much flowery language and like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, all this kind of stuff. And the executive's email is like, are we going to do this? Question mark. <laughs> it's like oh, just yeah. like the shortest thing ever. So I think there's a lot of credence in that. And I, I, I like literally used to tell people on my team um, if their email was too too long, I literally I just won't read it. Yeah, like, like I have a limit. Like I like you want to put all the details in there, please take them out. But the other thing is, and I, I don't know if you guys have ever used it, um, and I guess I'll just give them some free free publicity here. But uh, the tool Cultivate, there I think they're now about our Perceptics. Um, they have a tool that basically does I think a lot of like what the research you stated, Scott says. It's a super helpful tool for managers. I had it at a prior company, and it kind of tells you like the frequency of communication with your team, how quickly you're responding, your positive to negative ratio of like the praise and stuff that you're giving. Super helpful for being a manager. And it gives you information that you couldn't possibly have some other way, which is how do you stack up against all other managers at the company? So mm -hmm. that was like really helpful. Yeah. So it's actually scraping the content of your messages. That's really wild. Yeah. Yep. I mean, there's a tool called Textio, I think, and they're also doing those like bias corrections and stuff like that as well. Yeah. And, and how you're communicating, how you're um, uh, giving feedback and similar as well. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating space. But I don't know, like, like when it comes to executives, I, I feel that that's more uh, a function of uh, uh, like the speed of decision making. It's it's like that thinking fast versus thinking slow yeah. paradigm. Like you don't have a luxury of uh, of uh, taking forever. Like you can always see that they're not using the formalities around like dears and bests and stuff like that. It's always just uh, <laughs> like there is a core message and that's that's it. Um, and uh, yeah, that kind of speed of answer is also probably characteristic of more kind of risk prone uh, people, which I would typically say that is usually people that are in like higher up entrepreneurial roles, not more political. Uh, and you hit, you hit on you hit on what the article did as well. It's like if you're going to have uh, this much communication, uh, you know th this much that you got to deal with, you got to somehow simplify your life. And they do this by simplifying their emails and this sort of thing. And perhaps like I am a, a giveaway. I'm like a mid tier employee because I have like a three sentence max rule. Like if it's beyond three sentences, like no, no one's going to read it. 
In fact, probably one of the biggest power moves I ever saw is uh, I used to know this executive that would just write the entire email in the subject line. Just like, how are we doing on this? No, no message whatsoever. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> yeah, it's like a tweet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah Scott, I, I feel like you have even the power move above that, which is no email at all. <laughs> Like, like Scott, Scott emails less than anybody I know. He's like, but, I just won't read them or respond. But let's let's take that into account as well. Like, I think that like with with instant messaging with Slacks and and Microsoft Teams, like how many people are actually emailing now? Like, is this even a, a valid research from the volume of communication perspective? If if I could move everyone off of email, I would. It's just kind of like a stubborn old thing. Like Cole's right. Uh, it's all about instant messaging for me. Yeah. Uh, email is just a vestigial appendage from an earlier era of the internet. You know, it's like, why does this still exist? No, but it's it, intra-company, right? So like you don't have anyone yeah. on Slack. So, but if, if you're mostly communicating internally with employees, like why would you, why would you send emails? That's like a question. When I get an email, like, I feel like I got to do something with it. Like, it's like, uh, it's an object and I got to move it somehow from my inbox to the archive. And it's like something, once again, like something I got to deal with. And I just hate that. Yeah, Yeah, I think we all, you know what, what else is something that people have to deal with and nobody is good at, even though some people claim to be good at multitasking. Freaking multitasking. <laughs> so our next uh, nerdery topic is about this article called The Illusion of Multitasking and Its Positive Impact on Performance. And as any social scientist knows, but most human beings don't know, multitasking isn't real. And it hurts job performance. There's even like in Lean, I, I studied Lean and Six Sigma for a little bit earlier in my career. There's something called task switching. And they've done a lot of research that you take a 50% hit every time you switch switch your task. But I've gone all in in the other direction, which is I am completely and utterly incapable of even trying to multitask. I can't do two things at once. If I'm doing one thing, I literally cannot hear you and saying the other thing as Scott and my wife can probably attest to. So <laughs> I don't know. What, what are your guys' thoughts on multitasking? Should I go? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Well, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's a thing that you, you're constantly trying to achieve that, like focus and flow. And I think I, that, that has been like a, a great thing in my life. Like the things, for example, the reason why I enjoy guitar so much is because of that flow state, right? You're in the moment, you're doing one thing, you're getting immediate feedback and that's it, right? You're kind of there and you know that, uh, that, that, that you're doing it. But I think with a lot of these work-related elements, you don't have that immediate feedback. You don't get the immediate hit, right? So that's very elusive. And that's something that kind of pushes you to try all these different, uh, different things. Uh, So it's a, it's a very, I don't know, it's a very interesting concept. I try to avoid it, but I rarely do uh, at the end, because there are so many lucrative things that you want to go and try. And I try to keep myself disciplined and focused, but uh, but I am a victim of multitasking for sure. Yeah, I think there's two two sort of components there. Like, so you refer, you refer to like essentially a variety of interests and that, that, that's great. But like when, when someone, it's so annoying to see someone like multitasking during a meeting and you can tell that they're not paying attention whatsoever. 
And to, to the point where like, why are you even here at this point? Cause you're clearly not participating. You're clearly yeah. not involved. Even though like, if, if you like pause and they'd say like, Oh, Oh yes, yes. I'm totally, I'm totally <laughs> here with you, but you can tell that they're not. And, and Cole's right too. Like th- there's a switching cost involved that actually makes you slower, sure. slower, this sort of thing. I saw this yeah. uh, interview with uh, Bill Gates and uh, um, Steve Jobs. They're interviewing together, and uh, the interviewer asked him, "Like, what? what what's the biggest, uh, you know, factor in high performance?" And they both said, "Focus. Being able to focus on one thing at a time." And that's really stuck with me, even if I do multitask from time to time. Uh, I love that you brought that up. I. I figured out through a book called Persuasion from Robert C. Aldini that focus is literally like a superpower. Because if you realize, like, I always use the analogy of like the magician. No magicians actually know magic, but they can convince <laughs> you just by weaponizing your focus to not see one thing and see another thing. And therefore, they can do their magic tricks. And I think this is actually a really powerful weapon if you're trying to influence like executive stakeholders in a presentation of just how you show them what to focus on and what not to focus on and kind of, it's a really powerful tool if you're trying to, again, influence without authority. Oh, I think we see this quite a bit in people. I'm sure both you can uh, empathize of like when you go into a presentation and the audience directs themselves to something that is ancillary or irrelevant and you're like well oh, yeah. y- yes of course that's the data size or whatever but come on like let's, let's get back go back to the... yeah. yeah 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 exactly exactly but this <sighs> this is a skill like demanding kind of focus and being able to like this is the the magician that that call is referring to right uh, when you're at that presentation no matter what's the quality of the insight that you produce you're you need to be in the moment and being able to de- to kind of keep the authority in the room. So like anything that you did, like all the all the research, it can always go down the tangent and <laughs> it can take you and can take you in a very strange alleys if you're not able to focus people on the uh, on the call. So it's uh, it's a very good point. It's a very valid point. Is this something you're skilled at, Luca? Being able to uh, present and keep people on task. I'm not sure. I'm I'm trying to though. I'm uh, I'm I'm constantly kind of trying to to improve those uh, those skills. Uh, I guess that's when you kind of get into this uh, waters of kind of running a business and running a company, running a startup. Like that is like the time is a luxury that you don't have, unfortunately. Uh, so you constantly need to remind yourself that uh, you need to be on point uh, with everything, with the sales call, with, uh, uh, you know, internal meetings, mm-hmm. with what are you going to develop? What are you going to ditch? Uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, I want to believe that I'm getting more efficient, but uh, the time will tell. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I well, I'm curious, about... Luca, this is, this is something I probably should have asked you in another context but for what you were saying just made me think of it like is there something that you gain by starting a startup or that you give up by starting a startup that you wouldn't have in any other kind of context of work yeah i think that that amount of i mean i don't want to call it freedom uh but like intellectual freedom is something that i i found fascinating especially once and the, the level of gratification cannot match anything 
anything else when you are like an employee in the company. Uh, the, you know, the, the success that you feel when there is an actual success is like, you know, everything seems like very amplified. Um, so that kind of just feeling of, uh, of motivation and gratification for the things that you are working on is, uh, is quite, quite a different story when, when you're in the shoes of running something and building it from, from ground, ground up, uh, when like that, that kind of feeling that there was nothing, there was an idea. And then suddenly there is a, a, like, you know, 40 people that are excited about this and that are putting all of their efforts into making it work and a community customers thinking that it's a great thing. It's just like, I don't think there is anything that you can do on a, uh, on the level of being an employee that, um, uh, that gives you that kind of a satisfaction professionally. Uh, so it definitely is like that kind of level of freedom and satisfaction, something that, uh, has been transformative. And I didn't, didn't expect that, uh, at the first place. Uh, I think for me, it was more like, Hey, this is the right thing that, uh, that I want to do. Uh, it felt like a good timing because my kids were my, there was one kid that was on a way and I had a one-year-old son and I started thinking, you know, if I'm not going to do this right now, like when am I, <laughs> when am I going to test this and, and, and play with this? So, so yeah. it's, uh, yeah. Well, that's amazing. I think you are onto something about the point about freedom. I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was like Mark Andreessen or somebody like that. that's one of his famous, venture capital people, they were saying like, it used to be in the past, the maximum academic freedom you could have would be like a tenured professor. But now in recent <laughs> times, there's two levels above that. One is the startup founder. And then the next level is like billionaire, right? It's like, you can actually fund whatever research, like your startup could be kind of a research tank itself. And like a billionaire can just go pay to do whatever research they want to do in terms of having academic freedom. So I love I love that answer, Luca. The the three three comma club, the billionaire. Oh yeah, yeah. Good <laughs> good Silicon Valley reference there. Like, oh, very good call. I didn't know everyone was actually going to get that. But like like you, you speak of like the like the freedom you have of every every day like a startup you're, you're making like major strides surely because like everything's new you're trying to get off the ground but it must also be like terrifying because like now you have 40 mouths to feed essentially you got all these people that are depending on you to come uh, you in cannot, and be successful you, you cannot think about it like all, mm. all, all the times so I, I think it's uh it's more uh you know I, 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 you do definitely feel like level of uh uh, level of responsibility that you don't feel in a different sort of environment, but, you know, just the gratification again, from uh, like the successful part of the work and like, just keeping like the optimism and keeping the, I think, I think I'm generally like an optimistic person, right? So I, I tried not to, not to go down the alleys that are just going to lead to a vicious cycle of thinking, which is, you know, you keep, you keep a good outlook. There is a vision, there is a mission, uh, uh, that is related to what you do. And, uh, you know, you're doing, you're doing the best you can and you're trying to get other people to also give all their best to, yeah. to get there. Uh, there are so many factors that you can control in life and that's something that you just learn and, uh, you need to be adaptable to those and, uh, just having a confidence that, uh, that you will, uh, that you will be able to navigate, uh, uh, in, in the seas. Uh, I boy, I'd love to explore this with you more in depth uh, next time we get together. But uh, Luca, you mentioned you have uh, some kids. 
over there in Serbia. So uh, Dateline, uh, Los Angeles, uh, this guy, he's a uh, Dr. Fred Wolner. He says, modern school children are too soft. They need greater discipline from teachers. Uh, he said this at a um, uh, Los Angeles PTA meeting. The only problem is it was in 1931, right? This is a history of kids are too soft. And like, it's like, we, we think about like 1931, these are like the greatest generation, right? The, the most hardened people we could imagine. But 1921, they're saying the, the kids are moving too fast a pace. He's advocating for spanking of kids. Uh, 1942, the kids are dancing too much. Uh, 55, uh, kids are too soft. They spend all day sitting in front of the TV. No participation in athletics. Uh, 61, mothers made life too easy for children. 77, there's no discipline. 89, skateboarding is an issue. 99, Nintendo. 2008, 72% of survey respondents said the kids are just too soft. So there's like this intergenerational deal where the older generation thinks that the pre, uh, next generation is just too weak. What's Scott, I, I don't know, like, I, I, I always remember one one thing, I, I had one history class of the fall of the Roman Empire, right? And this same topic appeared in the memoirs of Jovian, like uh, <laughs> a, a, a Roman emperor yes. back in the, in the late uh, uh, stages of the Roman Empire, when he's talking about the previous generation of being very soft, and uh, uh, that, you know, there's like a morally, uh, uh, morally challenging... Uh, <laughs> times that are coming ahead because of the the new generations that are um uh, that are just not up to the the moral standards of the uh, of the current times and similar so it's like i think that's in just a human condition you know that kind of intergenerational gap is just present like from the uh from the beginnings of the civilization yes the kids these days you know, uh, old man, you know, get out of my lawn. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. I feel like, Luca, I feel like you're probably a part of Serbia's new greatest generation. So good on you, buddy. Um, <laughs> I know. I feel like my kids are all, they're soft because like all little kids are just little pudgy, little round balls of, <laughs> you know, of, of like their bones aren't fully developed. That's why they're soft. Not because they're not like. Oh, you're like literally soft. Literally, yeah. like physically yeah. soft. Yeah. Like have, it's not because we're not beating them enough or disciplining them enough or something. Do you think it's because like people have essentially, they reach adulthood and uh, they're having to officially fend for themselves. Like look at this group of uh, youngsters that, you know, that they're still in that sort of like play, figure out themselves sort of mentality. Yeah, it's, it's the fundamental human experience is like there's a significant chunk early in your life where you're provided for and then yeah. an even more significant chunk later in life where you're providing for others. And when you're providing for others, you're like, man, wouldn't it be great if somebody provided for me? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know. But there there is that generational cycle as well. I think, you know, it's uh, there is something to it with. Uh, I don't know if you study like rich dynasties and, 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 and similar, you always have like the first ones, the first movers that kind of generate the wealth. And they're usually coming mm -hmm. from a very uh, underpowered uh, uh, backgrounds. And then after that, like the next generation is very, uh, you know, uh, kind of has everything has been exposed to everything. So they feel like very comfortable in their shoes. So they're the ones that usually lose money until there is like a new generation that needs to create something uh, again from it. And I think there's like 
Churchill was uh, was 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 quoting uh, a, a story about like that bad times are bringing good leaders and that yeah. uh, good times are bringing bad leaders and that that's just a cycle that yeah. um, that goes on and and goes on right. I think I, Jay Den talked about that on the podcast too in his episode. He something Did along he? those lines. I don't know if he quoted Churchill, but he was you know it's like I think there's even something along the lines I've seen like research about immigrants to the u.s like first generation immigrants just fucking kill it second generation are like trying real hard but by the third generation they're like completely lackadaisical and just like basically like the average american at that point churchill did say i don't worry about action but inaction which is kind of along the same lines that luca brought up there um i, I do see a lot of like infighting between millennials and gen z for some reason, like Gen X has been left out of like the entire fray because like millennials fight with baby boomers too. Yeah. Well, it could be just millennials or jerks. Maybe that's <laughs> to... it possibly could. It possibly could be. Um yeah. I, I but like along Lucas Lucas point, I've also seen like uh baseball writers from like the nineteen hundred, like nineteen tens, like complain about the previous or the upcoming generation of baseball players saying, you know, they don't play the game the right way. Like we did all this sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think with like the analytics revolution, they're actually right. The game is fundamentally different than what it used to be, but Um, there is some truth to it now, at least for the first time. I am seeing some reports now that uh, say like Gen Z, they've been brought up where everything works, like all their technology works. So like everything is an app everything's on the phone and you know you just plug it in it's fine but they don't understand like how to set up like uh like a monitor or something like that where you have to like plug in cables and like troubleshoot just because they're like how how to use a copier in the office oh my god oh my god if you had to print something you'd be so old yeah i i I saw (laughs) i saw like along those lines i saw a meme i think earlier today and it was uh you know, a guy talking about, you know, I, I would I would love if I was able to bring the, all of the knowledge that I have right now back to the like middle ages, like to the centuries ago. And like, and then the next picture is this person sitting in front of people and they ask him, so how does this electricity work? <laughs> He's like, I don't know. <laughs> so that's it. <laughs> so, so and uh, and if, if you could explain how it worked, they would burn you <laughs> as if you're a witch. Yeah, exactly. This person is insane. Completely. Yeah. <laughs> but let's say that it was a renaissance or whatever, right? So well, yeah, they, they I think there's a famous saying which is like something like any sufficient level of technology is in, indistinguishable from magic. So you know yeah. you are a heretic at a certain point. Well, like along the same lines that we talked about chat GBT or generative AI earlier. Uh at some point, we won't be able to explain how we're getting the answers. There won't be a rationale for it. We'll just outsource our brains to this sort of like computer algorithm that uh, produces these results for us. So uh, I, I type something into ChatGPT, it gives me an answer, and it's like, well, how do you know that? It's like, oh, hell, I don't know. The yeah, it's just an, how do you know it? It's just yeah. new normal. Yeah. But you don't know it now either. I think like with new generations as well, oh, like these new generations. But like what really scared me uh, was just the access to to internet from the perspective of the, you know, they probably have, you know, the ability to search things, but don't really have the software in their heads to 
find and distinguish the truth from the fake right and mm -hmm. th th i think that was like the scariest point that that uh, that we achieved from especially with this like radicalization of thoughts and similar like this ability to find the truth for yourself and the things that are not necessarily scientific but uh that are just a bunch of opinions right and uh, i i feel that you know once machines learn that they're they're going to be able to uh, to to completely manipulate us into into going back to galapagos again and <laughs> and, and and counter counter the evolution it will once again like back to it like this is the value of a liberal arts education to be able to yeah. uh explore different topics and have different perspectives so go go study psychology yeah. <laughs> anyway well um and that's coming from three people with backgrounds in biopsychology and no bias at all but luca <laughs> you you've been an amazing guest thank you so much for joining us today and on a personal level thank you uh, and the Orgnostic for sponsoring the podcast. We're incredibly grateful and in, in, in br bringing about those additional capabilities. But any final words, Scott, before we give Luca the last word? Luca, it's an absolute pleasure talking to you. I can't wait to pick your brain uh, moving forward. Likewise. Thanks, it, it, it's, it's really been a pleasure and for both supporting um, Directionally Correct long-term and also being here. And thanks for for inviting me i know that uh, that you needed to invite me as a courtesy <laughs> anyways but uh but it was a pleasure to actually have a conversation like this so thanks again you're a great guy luca but you've been listening to direction correct uh people analytics podcast with colin scott and luca babbage the ceo of orgnostic thanks luca as always all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott, powered by Orgnostic.